This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to Wim Zwinnenberg. He's a researcher, run things, all sorts of stuff at Pax for Peace. Uh, He's a really good guy, his work is excellent and today he's going to be speaking to us about the rise of drone warfare and the way that governments all over the world are making it easier to kill people from the skies and how that is affecting war, diplomacy, all sorts. It's a really interesting episode. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us on the Patreon. We are 100% grassroots, no bullshit here. Support us at patreon.com slash popular front. You've got this new report out, right, which from what I can tell from what I've read of it, it's basically arguing that like drone warfare is kind of going out of control, right? Um, Tell us about that. Yeah, so we've been trying to um, trying to understand how the rise of drone production and proliferation is changing warfare. So we've been working on this at PAX for the last uh, ten years. Like we started off in two thousand ten, like exploring sort of the field of uh, drone technology. Back then, you know, swarms was, were already being discussed, um, artificial intelligence, etc. Um, so then sort of, you know, took off with, with the drone killings program under Obama since 2008. And since, you know, all of these organizations who have since then started working on it, like human rights organizations in the West, but also from Pakistan and from Yemen, have been saying like, okay, this is, you know, it's a new type of warfare, which has longer, longer term implications. So I mean, we've seen, of course, we've seen that what's happening in, in, uh, in Syria and in, uh, in Iraq uh, and of course Libya uh, earlier this year where there's a massive surge of uh, drone use by all actors and uh, what we're trying to understand was with this report like okay but how is it changing uh, warfare like and to order to understand that we took two um, uh, two case studies where we looked at Yemen and we looked at uh, Donbas in eastern Ukraine and trying to see okay who is using drones uh, where are these drones coming from? Uh, how are they being used? And how has it changed sort of military tactics and strategies? In so far, we could tell from uh, from uh, from doing this work remotely and trying to you know gather collection from uh, news articles uh, from um, like social media platforms where you know you see all these kind of videos and so. Um, and it's, that was kind of interesting to see because it's important to tell like okay how is this going to reflect in other conflicts um, because uh, having access to cheap lethal technology that can hit your enemy over a long distance being able to uh, you know continuously surveil your targets to uh, help uh, adjusting artillery or other kinds of weapons to find the targets uh, by guiding it uh, because you have basically all these flying cameras uh, potentially also with munitions in the sky um that's definitely gonna have an impact on on warfare and i think uh, the reason why we did this was to also um yeah to understand like what kind of restrictions what kind of discussion do we need to make sure this stuff doesn't end up in the wrong hands how to discuss rules of engagement or how to discuss like w- what kind of restrictions we should we should set on uh, drone sales because you know a lot of these drones are uh 
are dual use. So that means that they are built out of you know civilian components, but then being weaponized with the military parts. And this also has implications both on the battlefield, but also for like domestic purposes uh, when it comes to uh, giving armed groups or potentially terrorist access to uh, uh, technology where they can hit a target uh, where they which they couldn't reach before with other means. So I think that's the the main thrust behind the uh, behind the report, just to understand uh, these developments in the field. So that's uh, yeah, and uh, basically we sort of. Uh, try to uh, to look at these different components, but we can maybe talk about it a bit later as well. well we, we talk about the whole range of drones. So of course, like the whole drone warfare took off with the larger military type of drones, the size of an F-16, which can carry uh, payloads like, you know, missiles and bombs, uh, but also smaller types of drones uh, and also commercial drones, uh, because that has been very helpful. Um, so take, for example, the, uh, the the situation in eastern Ukraine where uh, Russian-backed separatists uh, and the Ukrainian uh, army supported with these paramilitary volunteer brigades in the beginning of the conflict in 2000 uh, when the, uh, the the civil war erupted. Um, the Ukrainian army like hardly had any like uh, drones. They had these old Soviet Tupolev massive slow kind of machines, which were basically, uh, I wasn't even, I'm not even sure if they were able to fly. Um, and then you had on the other side, the uh, Russia providing uh, technology to the separatists and also engaging themselves with their own uh, uh, drone technology, mostly based on Israeli platforms. Um, but it gives them, it gave them quite an advantage because they could uh, they could locate where uh, troop movements were of the Ukrainian army they could guide artillery and then, then later on you know they could also weaponize them if they wanted to so the Ukrainians like they had nothing so they started importing some uh, some commercial drones from from Canada from the US but uh, the volunteer brigades like there were a lot of engineers young engineers who wanted to help out and they started building uh, their own drones. So, um, and also, uh, this sort of gave rise to this whole drone industry in Ukraine, uh, where they, they built all these smaller types of commercial, but also, but not commercial, but it was, it's definitely military skill at the moment, uh, kamikaze drones, and which is now also looking for, they're also looking for an export market, but it definitely changed uh, the warfare. And it means, you know, if you're, if you know you're being spotted or you know there's like because like with satellites are you know, limited because it's cloudy in particular in this side of the of the world uh it's not like the middle east where most of the time you know you can have good satellite access but this is uh uh, uh you know an area which is cloudy so you need like lower flying machines um, and airplanes are of course are very expensive so if you want to locate your enemy and target your artillery or your mortars then this is very helpful to have. So this definitely gave a boost to uh, to both both sides of the party and and made it uh, of the war um, and it made it sort of a, a, an inf- an factor for you know, how you set up your camouflage systems, where do you hide your your uh, your weapon systems. Uh, then of course after the OCZ, the uh, Organization for uh, Security um, in Europe, was starting to sort of control the Minsk agreements between the separatists and the Ukrainian army. They also used drones to monitor uh, the peace agreements uh, to make sure there wasn't particular kind of heavy weapons present in the area, um, which also resulted in sort of counter reaction by the Russians, you know, counter drone warfare with electronic uh, um, like jamming systems and trying to shoot them down with rifles or 
um, other anti-aircraft uh, weapons, uh, which also you saw later on in Syria, which has been very helpful for the Russians to to uh, to develop their uh, air defenses and counter drone defenses against uh, Syrian rebels. Um, so this uh, this whole dynamic comes into play, which is super fascinating. It's like okay, how you know the technology. Uh, in particular in this area, like people refer to it as sometimes to this kind of drones, to UN drones. You know, the cameras are coming from Japan. The uh, gyro gyroscopes are coming from Germany. The payloads coming from China. Um, the, the 3D bombs are being manufactured with, um, or the, the bomblets are manufactured with uh, 3D printers. So it's like being assembled there. And it, it definitely, if you do it in the right way, um, and this is like, you know, it, it gives an enormous military advantage. And this is just the first stage, so it's very rudimentary. Uh, but you see this professionalization taking place. And it's also really important to look at the other conflicts where um, where states are basically supporting armed groups uh, with technology, with uh, engineering expertise, with materials. Um, so Yemen would be then a good example. We can perhaps dive in a little bit later. But uh, so that's... So basically, we're looking at a whole range of, of technology that's reshaping conflict at the moment. Mm, right. And in terms of um, big kind of commercial or not commercial, like big military drones, the kind we're seeing um, in Nagorno-Karabakh in Armenia right now, of course, Azerbaijan, the types we see Israel selling all over the place. Who is at the forefront of drone technology right now in that sense, would you say? Well, yeah, that, I think you you named them already. I think Israel, when it comes, right. is a, a major provider um, to all kinds of platforms. But uh, China is a major exporter. So we see Chinese drones popping up uh, all over the world, uh, in Africa, in Asia, uh, in, uh, in, you know, the Central Asia, uh, Southern Asia, um, in the Middle East. Uh, the U.S. definitely wants to be in here. So most of the European countries... Uh, are using uh, U.S. military drones, uh, smaller ones, uh, and I think at the moment there are like 10 countries uh, in this drone Reaper user group, um, which has the U.S. MQ-9 Reaper. It's, it's an armed larger drone. And the U.S., uh, but the U.S. Has, has to deal with restrictions. So there is the missile technology control regime, which is this um, uh, arms control export agreement uh, to prevent um, that states can... Uh, that uh, technology capable of carrying um, weapons of mass destruction is being exported to unwanted end users. Um, and UAVs were, are part of that control agreement because it's a means to, to uh, you know, uh, deliver weapons of mass destruction like nuclear, biological, chemical weapons. So because there is no control regime for drones back when this was developed, because there weren't any drones back then uh, in the way, in the sense that we have drones right now, so that's the only sort of that put limitations on the U.S. to export their um, their reapers and their predators. But now Trump wants to get rid of that because he wants to have the competition with uh, with China. And in the meantime, it was kind of the instinct development. You see all those states who think were thinking like, oh, that's you know the drone market is that's a booming business. We want in on that. So um, they started developing all these kind of drones, uh, like smaller types of drones that are not uh, dependent on. Um, on satellite uh, communication, so for example, if you buy a US Reaper drone, you also buy like the maintenance, you buy the satellite data link, so which is all US owned. So and you don't want to be dependent of that, um, well, unless you're like a NATO ally. 
Um, so, um, and the same with Chinese drones. If you use a Chinese drone, which is also satellite controlled, you have to use the satellite, Chinese satellite system. So that means also China knows what you're doing, what you're up to. So these new kind of, uh, so the other kind of states were um, like Ukraine, South Africa, Turkey, they were developing these drones that can fly beyond line of sight, but it doesn't need a satellite control system. So uh, you can train your pilots to navigate the drones uh, without being uh, dependent on someone else's uh, navigation systems. Um, and now the, the Turks have their own satellite as well. So that, but the, the plus side is you don't, you're not dependent on it. The downside is that your drones can't fly that far. So the, the Turkish uh, TB2s by Raktar, which are uh, flying over uh, Libya and uh, Idlib in northwest uh, Syria and, uh, and over Nagorno-Karabakh, like they have like a maximum flight radius of 150 kilometers, um, which is very limiting for in terms of operations. But, you know, most countries are not interested in doing, you know, carrying out large-scale killing operations at the other end of the world. So f for many of them, this is sufficient if you don't want to do cross-border operations. But um, so that's the kind of, that that's a market that is uh, interesting for producing states. Uh, same with Iran, for example, as well. Like Iranian drones also are not relying on, uh, most of them are not relying on satellite um, controls, but beyond line of sight, or they're being programmed to uh, uh, fly long distances like we've seen in Yemen. Um, so that's uh, so you have yeah, like a yeah China, uh, Iran to certain countries because they're very limited, of course. Um, um, but and uh, the US and Israel, but the, you have to keep your eyes open to uh, what Taiwan is producing, what Belarus is producing, South Africa and Pakistan, and Turkey for of course they're a major player at the moment. Because um, like, that's also one of the things why you see so many footage online. It's basically, you know, it's uh, of, of Turkish drones uh, targeting um, uh, um, Armenian troops in Nagorno-Karabakh. Because it's for sales, it's, it's you know, it's a combat-proven stamp you can put on your uh, on your package, and uh, it's very interesting. You see already the sales going up of Turkish TB2, uh, TB2 drones uh, all over. The place so uh but we have also have to look like what comes after that so like the question now is like who's going to make the ak-47 of the drone a simple effective easy to produce easy to maintain and use a drone that you can uh, deploy anywhere where you want and i think that's the question at the moment and then and now that's the market that you were looking at you know the, the loitering munitions um which israel uh ukraine uh, turkey has also a couple of uh Launching munitions as well, uh, the US as well, uh, but less on keen on exporting it. But that's an interesting market because that's uh, that that brings also other kinds of security risks with it as well. If you're gonna able to uh, produce an effective uh, suicide drone um, that's easy to produce, because then you when it, you can only think the worst, like if if armed groups or terrorists getting access to military grade suicide drones, it's a uh, it's a major security risk. Right, like when, when the AK is kind of the gold standard for just a resilient firearm in the war, you're saying that it could get to the point where there is a gold standard for a quick, easy, resilient suicide drone, essentially, in the war. And we're not talking about putting a mortar round on a DJI. You mean like an actual weaponized drone? Yeah, like the DJI is, you know, it's like the the first step. It's crude, but like right. the, the the pace of uh, technological technological developments uh, is going so fast that 
uh, in particular, if you bring in good uh, expertise that uh, we see it in Ukraine, I think Ukraine is a prime example where they started off with DJIs uh, and now they have uh, those kind of suicide drones basically built uh, from domestic drone industry, from just a couple of enthusiastic nationalistic uh, uh, folks who uh, who've now you know built a whole own drone industry and is now ready to enter the world market. Um, and the same happening in China as well. You know, you don't need uh, the chips you need for these kind of weapons. Are every every cell phone has a smartphone has a really capable chip that can do everything you want to do. So um, that's the the risk at the moment we're facing. And a lot of countries, if you look at military expos, um, what's being produced, what you know, what the military, uh, what the defense industry is uh, is uh, putting up, and what kind of uh, commercials they are sending out it's definitely that's the market where we're going to and yeah it's it's easy and accessible um and uh, yeah like if you it, it will change the whole perception of uh, air defenses of security systems of security parameters uh take the green zone for example you know you see the iraqis trying to uh, iraqi militias are trying to hit the u.s green zone with uh, katusha uh, or not katusha even it's uh, it's just uh, like an iranian uh, produced um uh, missiles, uh, fairly crude, can't hit a thing, mostly miss. Um, imagine if they have access to cheap hundreds of uh, of those kind of uh, uh, drones, uh, which are very precisely capable of hitting the U.S. embassy. That's a complete change uh, of uh, of the security setup because the U.S. can now intercept the incoming missiles with their CRAM, which is like this massive cannon which can fire a thousand bullets per minute to intercept those kind of missiles. If you have 100 drones coming your way at the same time, uh, yeah, uh, good luck with that. And that's, uh, and also in, in already on the, on the battlefield, uh, this is changing uh, the way you have to pay attention to uh, uh, what's coming at you. Like even in Mosul, we saw this where uh, both the, uh, the, the Peshmerga, uh, the Iraqi counterterrorism teams, but also the US coalition forces were present there when ISIS, you know, had access to DJIs uh, with explosives, they already were struggling because, in you know, you didn't anticipate that. So you have to pay attention what's happening, uh, not only what's happening in front of you, but also what is above you. Uh, so we can only imagine. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to to see what's happening if that professionalizes and that kind of technology uh, gets in uh, is easy to produce and easy to export. Um, and that's what you also see in Nagorno-Karabakh, like. A lot of those Israeli uh, Harpy and Herald drones are, you know, they're, you can um, you can launch them with relatively ease. Um, and being, you know, I think an average launcher has, I think, 20, 24 of those or 16 of those drones in a launcher. And they're fairly small, easy to transport, and you can hit a massive amount of targets in a very short time with a lot of precision. So, and that's the, uh, the change uh, drones will bring to the battleground. Um, and in terms of what we've just been talking about, a kind of uh, gold standard of like easy to deploy drone, have you seen any evidence that there is one of them on its way? Like surely one country must be ready to go with that. Yeah, so uh, Turkey has a, a bunch of them. They are now um, going to um, uh, deploy them as well. Um, there's the cargo, which looks like a... Uh, sort of a weaponized um, version of uh, of a DJI drone, but I also have seen recently um, 
uh, other examples uh, of Turkish drones where they're keen to um, mass produce them and uh, uh, launch them. So there is the, uh, it's called Alpagu, which is, uh, it looks a bit like, a, it's a tube launcher. So it, you can use, it's a, basically a large tube with a, with a flying drone in it. I'm not sure what the exact, as look up the specifications. Like, like, um, like a mortar that fires a drone. Yeah, it's basically a flying hand grenade. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's very cheap. You can just carry it around in your backpack, a couple of them. Uh, Israel has a mini harpy. Uh, Poland is now producing the Warmate, which is the same as the um, Israel, uh, the Turkish Alpagu. Um, the most famous one is, of course, the, the US Switchblade, which is used by US Special Forces, uh, shown up already in Syria and in Afghanistan. Uh, so those are the other examples I just gave you. The, uh, the Polish war mate showed up already in Libya. Uh, we're still not sure how they got there, and uh, clearly it's a violation of the arms embargo. Uh, Ukraine is called something called a Silent Thunder, which uh, is a sort of similar kind of uh, kamikaze drone. And the Ram UAV, also a kamikaze-style munition. Uh, and that's the kind of, uh, you know, those are the markets that are now eyeing for a piece of the pie when it comes to uh, uh, cheap uh, but very precise uh, uh, drones to be used in uh, these kind of conflicts. It's very tempting to uh, to uh, to acquire them and it's you know, super useful. The payload is, of course, not so heavy, but, you know, you just need to hit the right kind of target um, with it um, to... Uh, to be effective yeah and also instills terror you know there's nothing worse i mean i've never i've never actually been in an environment where uh, an armed drone has, has been near me like when i'm reporting on the front or whatever but i have been around mortars and just that feeling of just something is coming from the air and you don't really know where it's coming from it's fucking terrifying like everyone is scared and i've seen lots of footage of people terrified of drones and when you're watching them videos specifically right now in nagorno karabakh where you're just seeing like groups of soldiers sitting around, no idea what's going on, boom, gone. Like everyone's gone. Do you know what I mean? It's it's a very new frontier, I think. Maybe maybe that's naive, but to me it doesn't feel like, it feels quite new still. Do you know what I mean? No, definitely. And then uh, there's the difference, of course, you can, it works two ways. So, and you've seen probably the same videos as I have, but either you can make a lot of noise to scare people. Uh, so those kind of the Israeli, uh, the harp, the harpies and the herops, like they hear the buzzing sound flying over and it scares soldiers already because they know next time, uh, they know where it's coming from. And it, uh, you hear the sound above you. And it's also the same sort of effect that, uh, the U.S. drones had in their target killing campaign over Yemen and Pakistan, where people like were hearing this noise 24 hours a day, and you don't know when a missile is going to hit you because you don't know if the guy sitting next to you, you know, is a suspected uh, terrorist or not that the U.S. deemed, and uh, that they are entitled to kill and kill you along with it. Um, and so civilian populations were scared, scared shitless uh, the whole time um, because of these uh, these drone strikes taking place. Um, and the other side is, yeah, what you mentioned, if you don't know what's happening, you don't hear anything, um, because those, there are also quieter ones, like the Israeli orbiter 1K is uh, uh, being used in uh, by Azerbaijan as well. And, and it's also, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, coming death coming out of nothing is like uh, the, the worst thing if you're in a soldier, because in, in, if you're in a, in a, 
you know, in a ditch somewhere or in a trench, and you, you know, usually with artillery, etc., it, it, you can hear it. You can hear it sort of, you know, it's being fired. You can hear the explosions. Um, you can sort of anticipate hiding. But precise drones, just, they just need to spot you and you can drop this, you know, the drone can drop on you uh, immediately without from like vertical, but uh, like horizontal, just flying at the target. But uh, you can see in the promotion videos of the of the uh, harpies by the Israelis, they're really saying, "Well, we can, you know, so so come from above. You know, you, you don't look straight up. Maybe you look, you scan the horizon, but this thing is coming from straight up from above you. Like you you don't see it coming, and that's also the uh, the, the threat, I guess, for for soldiers, um, which is uh, which is changing, uh, definitely changing warfare." Um, but at the same time, also with the long-distance drones, that was sort of interesting in, in the Yemen case, where uh, these drones were, you know, assembled by the Houthis, more, very likely with Iranian support. Um, but these these kind of drones, like you could buy this stuff that was uh, where they were built with on on uh, on uh, on uh, Alibaba.com, like the diesel engines that could carry these drones for over like fifteen hundred kilometers, and the Houthis were able to target. Saudi oil fields, Saudi uh, um, airports, uh, water uh, desalinization plants on the coast. Uh, the Saudis had to set up all kind of expensive air defenses um, because of cheap kind of drones, which you could assemble for like fifteen hundred bucks. Um, but with material fine online, it can, but it can strike terror like uh, hundreds to over a thousand kilometers away. And this is like a new type of warfare where all of a sudden, uh, you know, it's being brought home by um by Saudi uh by the Houthis to the Saudi Arabia's population and uh that's kind of uh you know if you they're able to fly low they can uh, the, avoid the radar detection which we saw in uh, with the Iranian uh, strike with Houthis and cruise missiles in uh, in um in Saudi Arabia in September 2019 um and that's uh that's risky business and that's so that's also we're trying to see okay how this changing perception of warfare if everyone can have access to very, very high precision munitions. Yeah, it, it, in some ways it really evens the playing field for want of a better term, but in others, if you don't have the military, like spending kind of military might goes out the window. Do you know what I mean? Like Armenian fighters, they're fighting hard, whatever, um, as are the Azerbaijanis, but the Azerbaijanis have the drones, the massive capacity of drones, which... For them, it's just helping them. Do you know what I mean? It's really, we're seeing so many um, Armenian soldiers killed. There's no denying it, it's happening. And really a lot of it is coming from the drones. So it's a funny one, you know what I mean? It, it, it kind of levels it and it kind of doesn't, depending on, I guess, how they're being used. Well, yeah, it's it's like in this case of, uh, it's also, I guess, what your strategic objective is. So uh, I think the time will tell what's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh, but... Um, the uh they're able to take out a lot of the armenian and azerbaijanis or i guess uh yeah probably also uh turks are also the turkish army is probably also still supporting that with either personnel um in those operations um the question is also like if it's not com you can take out all these systems and people but they, on the ground we don't see any significant um change in terms of uh, did you actually able to conquer territory or hold territory um so there's definitely you know there's power uh politics at play there so it's a kind of force projection by states with drones uh, but also non-state actors like we've seen with uh with houthis in yemen 
um, to show like listen you know we can take out everything we want um, if you if you want to uh, and uh, so it also you know it can help you on the negotiation table uh, for example I think definitely that, that's what happened with the with the Houthis um, and uh, potentially also and I'm not an expert on the region so I, I can't say much about the Nagorno-Karabakh situation but like I can no doubt but also com- looking at where they, are they actually able to conquer territory, which was not a lot so far, the uh, Azerbaijanis. So potentially it's also a tool to you to, uh, you know, it's a force projection on this is what we are capable of. Um, and that's, uh, we're probably, yeah, we're seeing that as well in Libya, where there's also a massive use of uh, of drones and also with the, um, you know, the case of the Turks, uh, Turkish uh, army striking um, all the um, Syrian forces in Idlib and earlier this year. Just like, you know, um, this is what we can do, so you better uh, stand back or, uh, or you know, it's a, that's, a, that's an instrument as well. Um, so that's kind of the, the relevance of looking at those kind of patterns of, of drone use um, and, and, and people are anticipating as well. So non-state actors are seeing the advantages of having drones, um, as I mentioned with the Houthis, but also other groups in Yemen, uh, non-state armed groups are looking into that. Um, but also, like yeah, Libya, we see the same, um, and that's uh, that's interesting in terms of uh, of, of tactics and and strategy. Um, what is was change perception of risk? Uh, would, for example, Nagorno Karabakh, would Armenia, would Azerbaijan have done the same with with uh, crew uh, crewed aircraft, with you know jet fighters or helicopters? I doubt it. So, you know, it, but the fact they had drones and have this capability. Um, made them go to a war with Armenia, but without it, we wouldn't have seen this massive use of lethal force uh, in this area. So that's already a change that drones are currently uh, having on uh, regional security uh, and on on threat perception. So that's uh, good also to make that link also with how we as a, and that's why the work what we're doing at the moment is engaging with states. Like, listen, this is could easily escalate in something worse if you get a wrong reaction. And so far, we've been on the edge a couple of times. Uh, for example, last year when uh, uh, this, uh, or was it this year? Um, that was last year when the US RQ4 uh, Global Hawk, it's a massive, big $100 million uh, plane, was shut down by Iran. Um, you know, it escalated tensions between the US and Iran, of course. But uh, if that was a manned aircraft, uh, we would have seen a different reaction. Um, but um, yeah, the US, the Iran could think, Iran thought it could pull this off because it was a drone. But uh, depending, uh, I guess, on the mood of Trump or uh, how he felt that day, or uh, that could lead to different kind of retaliations and, and change uh, the dynamic of conflicts. That's a really good point, actually, specifically what you said about like, I mean, again, using Nagorno-Karabakh as an example, just because it's happening right now. But like you said, yeah, they're using, well, I said, yeah, they're using the drones, like they're winning on that sense, but they're only winning in terms of the amount of soldiers killed, which is not really winning a war. You know what I mean? You're right, actually. I was reading today that Azerbaijan have actually not really taken that much ground at all. Um, So you're right, definitely there. And yeah, that brings up another good point. Like it almost... I don't know, it, it, like for someone like Iran or America or whatever, they can almost save face by shooting down a drone, right? If you shoot down a jet 
you're in fucking trouble. You've killed a pilot, and it's a way bigger deal, right? If you shoot down a drone, you can kind of say, hey, we shot down the American drone or whatever, but actually, you've, all right, they've lost some hardware, but it's not the same as, you know, a whole family losing somebody or whatever. There's no face to go in the paper. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't really think of it like that. It's quite interesting. Well, it's, it's also because uh, um, it's relevant because, you know, it, if you shoot down a plane and a pilot is lost of being captured, you're also forced by your own audience, by your own voters to, to react, you know. Uh, in the case of the U.S., suppose there was a manned aircraft and in the, the U.S., even if the, the pilot wasn't killed but ejected and was caught by the Iranians, you know, the U.S. would have, it would have forced their hand to do something because, you know, you want to, don't want to lose face. Whereas, like yeah, like yeah, like you said, with a with a drone, it's like okay, you lose you lost a lot of equipment, but that's it. Um, and but at the same time, it all depends on what kind of reaction you have. And yeah, uh, drones don't uh, you can't hold ground with drones. So if you don't combine it with uh, with air uh, or with land forces or with a military uh, footprint uh, on the ground, then yeah, it, it's uh, you can use it as a sort of uh, control the air and and uh, control the the movements of your uh, forces. But it also comes with limitations if you're not doing something else. So that's, for example, the U.S. Uh, drone campaign in Pakistan in Yemen. Um, yeah, people disagree with this assessment, but you know, did it actually defeat Al Qaeda and the Taliban? In like, the drone war started in. 2004 with the first drone strike, uh, 2002 actually in Yemen, uh, but later on uh, it escalated under Obama in 2008 until, until 2012. But uh, did it help beat Al-Qaeda or the Taliban? Like, no, I mean, uh, <laughs> no, no. no, not the Taliban at least, maybe with Al-Qaeda it had like, okay, the people they were on the run, but like you, you in the end it's it's uh, it was just a, a desperate measure because they didn't have any other tools or I didn't want to invest in any other tools, but it didn't. It didn't. You can't kill terrorism by just by killing a terrorist only, and that's the limitations of the drones. But it means it's being sold as, as this sort of, you know, risk-free uh, technology, which is she- cheap and um, it's going to solve uh, all your problems. Some some kind of um, you know, it's kind of silver bullet for complex problems. But you know, real life is more complicated than killing people that are in your way. And that's the same we see, I guess, also in Nagorno-Karabakh. You can blow them up, but what's next? And the same with, it's sending a message, that's for sure. Uh, also in, in, in Idlib with the Turkish campaign, it can be very effective. And um, But it's also, uh, that's convincing what I'm, I would be fascinated, uh, to fascinated to learn more about, like how, I mean, other states are paying attention to this, of course, as well. It's like, okay, so these, you know, the Turkish drones are definitely being used in, uh, and there's probably a lot of uh, electronic warfare play as well that's jamming the Armenian systems uh, so they don't see the drones coming. Um, so, you know, how how is the next, the next war where these are being used? I wouldn't be surprised if we see a system popping up that's able to uh, to take out these drones. That you can i can guarantee you that like a lot of people in the defense industry are, are looking at this and like oh that's a that's going to be a challenge uh for other you know, potential customers or whatever so we need to find a way to uh, take out these kind of drone systems uh, so you saw it also with the isis drones you know the commercial dji uh, they were being used and all of a sudden like a couple of years later all these fancy uh guns uh, uh, handheld guns were showing up in in battlefields uh, like the sci-fi looking weapons to to jam the signals from those drones etc 
because uh, it became a threat. And that's probably the same we'll see with uh, the larger type of drone warfare. Uh, actually, it was already happening in, in Yemen where the Houthis were like uh, shooting down Chinese uh, wing lungs, uh, like these bigger, big arm drones and the US uh, Reaper drones with uh, surface to, to air missiles. Um, a couple of them were shot down over um, over uh, over Yemen. Um, unless, like, because they don't have an air force, unless of, of, if you have an air force, it's very easy to, uh, relatively easy to shoot them down because they're slow and vulnerable. But um, if you don't uh, control the airspace, um, you might have to look at other options to uh, to counter the drone threats. And that's probably something states who are active in those kind of regions and non-state armed groups will be definitely looking into. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a weird new world of warfare, man. Um, I want to speak specifically about certain types of drones, specifically ones that we've seen in the news recently. Um, maybe you can kind of explain what they are. So first of all, we're hearing a lot about the loitering drone or the loitering new mission. Jesus, munition um, the, the, uh, Israel has been um, sending over to Azerbaijan. Some people calling it a suicide drone. Like, what is that? How does it work? Yeah, so basically, yeah, what you mentioned, it's a, a suicide drone. And they, at the moment, they come all shapes and sizes. So you have very small ones that uh, are based, uh, like you can put them in a tube and carry them around. Um, they're launched by a soldier on the ground who displaces the tube on, uh, launches the drone and with a handheld device, the size of a, uh, of a smartphone, he, you know, there's a camera from the drone. There's a, a payload, um, usually around uh, one kilo to, um, um, yeah, some uh, bigger payloads, depending how big the drone is, but like those small handheld ones has like between one and two kilo payload. Uh, and then the the soldier can guide the drone to its target. So basically, it's a big flying uh, grenade, uh, but it can be very precise. It can fly over a long distance. Like for example, the um, the one I was just talking about, the uh, was it the um, the Warmate, uh, the one from Poland. Um, yeah. It can fly for half an hour. Uh, we don't know exactly what the range is or the. Uh, the US um, switchblade uh, has a range of five kilometers. So basically you have a, a drone, which is a 40, the switchblade is, for example, is 40 millimeters uh, grenade. So it's like a, a fairly big, good uh, explosion you can get with that. You can fly the five kilometers far away. There's a camera link between your handheld phone and you can just drop it from all the way straight up from above down on your target. It doesn't see, doesn't see you coming. And those are sort of, yeah, you can fly around, uh, you can, you know, see when you're, when you deem your opportunity is fit, you can just drop it on the target. Um, so this, those are the kind of things which are, you don't want to end, have those kind of drones end up in the wrong hands because definitely it's uh, um, uh, the ability to give armed groups or individuals that capability is, it's very easy to, to, um, to misuse and it's very easy to handle. And then, the systems are going up. So then you have like a larger type of drone. So for example, the Israeli um, Harpy is uh, a smaller type of uh, uh, drone which can fly over uh, like the, there's the Hyrop, which is uh, the, it looks like a, yeah, how to describe it? That's sort of hard on podcasts to describe it. It's sort of V-shaped uh, yeah. uh, system. Uh, the uh, the Harop can fly for six hours, has a range of thousand kilometers, 
Uh, it's being launched uh, from a truck. You can put several of those drones uh, in a truck. Uh, when it launches, the wings uh, come out and then um, it you know, can fly around. It has a warhead of 23 uh, kilograms. So, you know, uh, it's very effective. You can launch dozens of them at the same time. So it's easy to overwhelm enemy defenses. And the reason I personally still keep calling them drones is because it's based on the same technology or the same technology being used as in a drone. And it's also relevant to I don't, to um, keep the drone in here or because it's that also links with the opportunities to uh, uh, address these concerns over their export in uh, um, uh, arms export control regimes. If you there's still the you know if their drone technology is involved, it gives you more opportunities to um, to uh, you know if uh, someone wants to buy them to make it part of a risk assessment to say can we sell these drones to this country or not. Um, uh, so it's uh, yeah so you. And that's the thing the 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 future we're looking at as well is you know the ability to uh, launch dozens or hundreds of them at the same time, uh, overwhelm enemy air defenses if you have to carry out a large attack, uh, but also to communicate with each other. So the U.S., for example, is experimenting with um, kind of smaller type of smaller types of drones um, that can fly in swarms and they can you know launch thousands of them at the same time. Like little miniature ones. Exactly. Wow. And they communicate with each other and form a pattern, etc. Uh, and they, they're using them for war? Yeah. Yeah. Those are like uh, the uh, DARPA had this, uh, uh, they published a video about this, I think a year and a half ago, uh, where an F-18 was dropping a couple of those, which are basically um, smaller. You can, I think that's sort of interesting also for the discussion on uh, on arms export control, but also on arms use, because basically they're cluster munitions in some sense. They're very smart cluster munitions, which already are constrained by international humanitarian law on how they can be used. There actually there's a, a ban on cluster munition use. Uh, unfortunately, the US isn't uh, signed up to that. But um, um, because you know a lot of them don't explode on impact. If you have even with normal grenades, not everything explodes. Um, so if you're going to use a thousand mini drones um, with explosives and you're going to launch them in a target, not not everything of them, not all of them explode. So you still have lots of loitering uh, or leftover munitions in the ground, which can easily be picked up by people and explode again. So that question sort of comes back there as well. So, but going back to your question, sorry. So we've now seen. Know, dozens of different types of those kind of uh, loitering munitions um, or suicide drones uh, being developed from countries all over the world. I think Israel is the most important producer and investor in those kind of um, uh, loitering munitions slash kamikaze drones and then followed by Turkey, US uh, and Poland. But I'm pretty sure we'll see others uh, catching up as well when it comes to um, those kind of uh, munitions and China to some extent too, but uh, they haven't been exporting them a lot so far. I haven't seen them actually being used in conflicts, but they did develop a couple of uh, models uh, and have been promoting them on military uh, exhibitions. But yeah, so that's uh, that's sort of the, the 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 playing field at the moment when it comes to um, these type of munitions. But it's also yeah, it's the the cheap and cheap technology is making all these kind of uh, futuristic wars or weapon systems um, attractive for customers all over the world. 
Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, you can bet those China ones are coming as well. Um, what about this, uh, the US Ninja drone, as, as it's sometimes called? The one where it kind of flies out the air and just slices guys up. You know, they used one recently to kill a jihadist near Idlib, and it just went through the top of his car, sliced him to bits. You know, he was splattered, and everyone else was fine, really. Like, it didn't, there was no civilian casualties, there was no huge explosion. Those to me are just like, wow. Like, it's, it's, I mean, it's scary, it's horrible, but it's really like futuristic. Um, how do they work? Yeah, so that, that's basically just a missile. Uh, so it's the, it's fired by a drone, but it's a missile with uh, blades uh, inside the uh, uh, the missile itself. So it doesn't have an explosive warhead. Uh, it just has the blades. It just has like something heavy uh, in the in the in top of the in front of the grenade, uh, in front of the missile, which is a, a Hellfire uh, a missile, uh, which are usually in the past been used by uh, drones for target killings. Um, and exactly because of concerns over civilian casualties in counterterrorism operations, um, in particular, when the U.S. of course they got a lot of pushback on their the massive uh, death rate among civilians in their in their uh, uh, drone uh, campaigns uh, in in Yemen, Somalia, and uh, Pakistan, um, they're sort of forced to think about okay. Um, if we don't, if we don't, we still want to get support for our operations, but we don't want to kill civilians. Like, what else can we do that absolutely guarantees uh, that the person we hit is uh, is killed? Um, so the the blades, sort of uh, this ninja this ninja missile, uh, was designed to uh, to to uh, to work like that. So, because the missile, the blades uh, popping up just a couple of seconds before impact, it means you know the uh, the um, the what's the word for it the uh um and the radius of impact becomes bigger but not big enough to uh cause civilian casualties suppose someone is like five meter away from the car with an explosive missile that person could potentially be killed as well with this missile you know it would be uh, it would be on our on uh, unharmed and a lot of those uh terrorists or suspected terrorists or or uh, militants are are uh, hiding among the civilian population in Idlib, so um, you know, the U.S. has to be more careful um, with uh, with their operations than uh, they had to be on a normal battlefield because they're basically not um, in war with Syria uh, because those well, this is not in the Syrian government-controlled area, but uh, they're they're not in in war necessarily with uh, the major. Uh, armed groups in that area, so they target this specific armed group, or uh, which is linked with Al Qaeda, um, just to uh, take out the leadership there. But the uh, they don't want to upset too much the other. You know, if they if they would hit civilians there, they would lose legitimacy. So I think uh, it's a yeah, it's it's a it's it's effective what it does in that sense, but it's also gruesome in particular if you're were unlucky enough to see the uh, photos after the impact, which I couldn't recommend, but. Yeah, no, me either. It's certainly unlucky if you're on the receiving end of that as well. Like, Jesus, that's got you. Like, I mean, I'm not being horrible here, but I, I was like, when I saw the pictures, it's like, Christ, there's no, it's, when people say ninja drawing, it's because it looks like, I don't know, six ninja swords have shot out, like samurai swords have shot out from the thing and just sliced the person up, right? Like it seems, from what I've seen anyway, just looking at it through research, it looks incredibly precise. Do you know what I mean? 
Um, and it, which is also, which I think from a civilian, uh, saving civilian lives in conflict uh, or in this kind of operations is uh, in that sense uh, an, Im an improvement, I wouldn't say, uh, to prevent the civilian casualties. Uh, at the other end, uh, it also can lead to some kind of weird justification for states to deploy these kind of means uh, of, of to deploy these kind of drones because they say well we can precisely take out this person uh, but we have to be careful here because we also noticed in a lot of um, um, drone strikes with explosive missiles in in Yemen and Pakistan and uh, Somalia uh, you can precisely kill the wrong person or if you don't know why certain persons are being killed, and of course uh, there are a lot of people, innocent people being killed as well, because the information which the decision was based on to kill a person was wrong, uh, or there was no clear justification uh, for using lethal force against uh, a person. Um, if you're not, uh, so for example, like, you know, the US has been criticized a lot for the drone killings in, in Yemen and Pakistan and Somalia. Um, because they were not at war with that country or because um, and the people who were being killed were like low-level soldiers. Uh, they were not necessarily, um, um, uh, they were not necessarily a threat to the US because you can only use lethal force outside of a conflict if there's a, an imminent threat from that person against your country. That's the only justification under international law to kill someone, because like there's no only uh, there's no only there's no other option to protect yourself by killing that person. Just like the police is not to use uh, not able to use the weapon, at least not in uh, in, in Europe. Uh, uh, but uh, it's like a last resort. Uh, and the reason why that is is because you know you know the state has means of deadly violence in their hands, and we give we gave up that sort of right to use lethal force ourselves and give it to the state as in a social contract to, but in order to trust the state that it's not going to randomly use it against you uh, so on the international level and i know some people um you know have, have their thoughts about the effectiveness of international law but um you know it's all we have at the moment to protect ourselves from random state violence that there are certain law legal principles we can trust uh, that they're being upheld but if the if states are uh, finding more ways to kill other people without any without a clear justification um, outside of a conflict, um, and they refuse to provide any clarifications or why they did that or why this person was a threat, uh, it's a dangerous development. And and it, even if the U.S. is doing it at the moment, but like what's if we don't counter that kind of um, um, practice? Uh, other states will be using this as well. So we can easily imagine, um, you know, states flying also with similar kind of drones, which can be very precise, but kill people we don't think uh, are a terrorist. Because like, you know, the word terrorist is also uh, used randomly by, if, by people if it fits their description. So uh, Turkey, for example, was keen to have Muslim Kobani on the terrorist list and kill him. Well, you know, he's the, the leader um, 
of the leader or is the military commander of the Syrian Democratic Forces fighting against uh, ISIS in the northeast Syria? Bro, I've I've been charged with terrorism in Turkey, man. Like, what if they send a fucking drone to UK and bomb out my house? Like, no, I'm joking, but I know you. I get your point exactly. Like, right? They can just suddenly decide. Well, we didn't enter their country. We had a terrorist to take out, and it's all well and good when people say, "Oh, well, you know, US are taking out Al Qaeda people," but. What if America decides someone else is a terrorist that they don't like anymore, which they've done loads of times, look at Saddam Hussein, or like you say, like a, a more despotic country does it. That raises a lot of worrying issues with diplomacy, with law. Are we seeing any kind of efforts to, I don't know, you would think there needs to be some kind of, I don't know, drone constitution or something. Do you know what I mean? Is, is there any efforts to do something like that? Well, this is uh, the kind of work we're trying to uh, push for, for for years, and there have been some successes as well. So, for example, in the, in the U.S. Uh, last week, the ACLU, the, um, the American Civil Liberties uh, uh, Union, has uh, forced the U.S. government's hand to be more open and push back against their like their program to uh, uh, to be more transparent about who they kill and why. Um, in order to protect uh, people's lives, because if there's this uh, journalist who's based in Idlib, he's an uh, like an Afro-American man, oh, uh, uh, Abdul Karim. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know him. I mean, I, I have a very different opinion of him, and a lot of people hate me for it. But I've watched videos of him um, years and years ago cheering on Al Qaeda suicide bombers, saying the heroes off the battle. So you know, and I also saw him celebrating when women were raped in Afrin. So that's you can you know that's despicable if someone does that but does because of that does that person deserve to be killed with a drone strike exactly no because it's free speech essentially if he's not got involved in violence you are right i mean i mean i i don't agree with it either like let me let me just be be clear on that like i think i everyone who's cheering for that but that doesn't justify um at least not for the u.s to kill its own uh, citizens and uh it can also be uh you know, a downward spiral to, um, towards uh, anyone who doesn't have the same opinions you have just to, to kill that person. If he was actively instigating, right. you know, violence still, you know, it's a, it's, it's a slippery slope. That's why I'm warning, that's why I'm careful of. I can, I can definitely see all kind of advantages or disadvantages of doing these kind of operations. But, you know, um, we have to be really careful be who we give the authority to kill. And, and that's the whole thing going back to your question. Like, yeah, okay, so you can kill that person very precisely without killing civilians. That still doesn't make it always just. Maybe, you know, in the case of Evitlip, uh, there, there might be reasons for that. But, like, you know, uh, again, like I said, like, if it's another state who's starting to use this kind of weapons against uh, their uh, opposition groups, um, then, and we have never spoken out and said something about that, then we're in a whole different position. Uh, and now to come back to your your question on like something done about it, like that's the sad part. Like no, like the the world has remained silent so far on the U.S. drone killing campaign. There have been some discussions in the UN and has been trying to be erased by various uh, a couple of states in the past. But there's not a big appetite for constraint. People are not um, willing or able to to counter the U.S. with their questionable or uh, drone killing programs. Um, because it's also, you know, uh, convenient for some states to let the U.S. carry out the dirty work they're not able, or they're not wanting to do. Uh, we actually, on, on the opposite, we see more states uh, looking to acquire drones, armed drones. Uh, France, uh, 
like it's a very interesting case. Uh, France has flying reapers in in the Sahel and been carrying out um, targeted killings uh, since uh, the reapers what got armed. So um, uh, over the last couple of months, and we don't know who they're targeting. I mean, I I you know I don't see them massively abusing uh, their powers there, but uh, it's still good on principle to be clear how you are using lethal violence in murky operations like those kind of uh, uh, counterinsurgency operations, even though it has uh, some kind of uh, uh, legal justification through a UN resolution or whatever, you still want to know what your state is up to. And in case they make a mistake, you will, you want to be able to hold them accountable for the mistakes they're making. But if that's not uh, possible because we don't know what they're doing with their drones, uh, it's it, it's getting more tricky. So the U- UK is, uh, you know, I've been carrying out a couple of uh, target killings with drones. Uh, more European states uh, are uh, buying armed drones. Um, and those are the bigger ones, um, not the, the, you know, the, the smaller ones, which are more easy to use for uh, target killings or other kind of uh, lethal operations. But so that's why we're trying now to, there was a UN special rapporteur who brought, those, brought out this report uh, in June uh, based on the uh, U.S. killing of uh, the Iranian general Soleimani in uh, in Iraq, but also addressing the larger problem with like, hey, listen, you have all these new tools and technologies right now, but if you don't uh, be more clear what limitations are of the use of this, this can easily escalate uh, and either lead to more innocent civilian lives or lead to more um, uh, in, in a more insecure world because we have all these capabilities. So that's why we've been pushing also for now for uh, having this the discussion or uh, not discussion, we have to work towards something more, uh, some kind of uh, normative uh, regime or um, or states clarifying what limitations are of drone warfare and it and it's the whole scope, like from the smaller type of drones we we're just talking in the beginning, but also how technology, what kind of constraints we have to put on using and exporting technology because it can easily lead to all kinds of uh, detrimental effects for civilians and for security. But that's there at the moment, there's a sort of silence in the international community because nobody, everyone's also eyeing for drones, right? You know, they, they want to have them themselves as well. And they don't want to limit themselves too much if, in case they have them and they can't use them anymore. So God, that is so dark. Yeah. And that's, I mean, they haven't even entered the territory of uh, autonomous or more autonomy in weapon systems. So that's uh, like a next the level. The ones that kind of fly themselves, right? Yeah, and they can take out the target themselves. Like, not there's not a human decision anymore. Like, it just identifies the target. The computer, uh, the uh, artificial intelligence uh, seeks out the target based on patterns or algorithms, and then decides to engage on the target. And that's something that's like next level stuff, which uh, which goes beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. Because maybe it's more important now also to talk about stuff that's capable to be on the battlefield in the next five to ten years. I mean, artificial intelligence is. You know, there's also a lot of hype about it, and uh, and definitely we'll see its use on the battlefield, but it's it's not going to be fielded anytime, like in the next five years at least. But uh, it's more and more creeping into military systems anyway, from targeting to uh, to weapon systems at some point. But uh, it's already there in defensive systems. So you know, air defense systems already are using um, automated responses to uh, incoming missiles, etc. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 you know, we spoke a bit about America there. I don't want to, I don't want to like let them off the hook if you get what I mean. Because I, I remember reading about Obama, right? Obama was the guy that kind of really ratcheted up the drone killings, um, 
And I remember reading that in the end, like so many civilians ended up dying. Back then, it was more likely, right, that it would kill civilians. I think it killed more civilians than actual, you know, supposed terrorists. Um, maybe just talk about that because we have a lot of young listeners who won't know about that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So basically, um, Obama was actually started under Bush already, um, mm. but Obama really. Um, took pride in it, uh, actually was bragging about it also on TV with, to, to some disgust of, uh, of many, of at least from people in, in the areas where drones were heavily being used. So they used like these, uh, what we call predators and reapers, which are like armed drones flying over uh, areas where the US was not at war with. So the US was not at war with Yemen, the US was not at war with Pakistan, and the US was not at war with Somalia. Still, they were targeting uh, people there uh, in the beginning. There are a lot of more and more stories coming out where basically the CIA uh, took out certain people because the Pakistani secret uh, service didn't like some drug dealer. So in order for Pakistan support to help the U.S. find terrorists, the U.S. had to kill these drug dealers um, or these drug lords in uh, in, uh, in in Pakistan, um, which is a confirmed story. Uh, the drones were being used to strike at funerals of uh, suspected uh, of militants which were killed and then there would be like double uh, strike at the funeral to make sure they killed other people at that funeral. Um, people in in cars were being, uh, like civilians in, in cars were being targeted. Like one story that always stuck with me was uh, from one of our partners in Yemen. It's a human rights organization who did an interview and they were in a car. Um, so they're driving... And this, this is a clear example of what's wrong with drone warfare. So they were driving to Yemen, uh, two cars. Uh, they passed a Yemeni checkpoint from the Yemeni government, which was still in control of that area. And they were driving into the area, sort of, I guess, not anymore in, in control of the government. And I think it was a couple of hundred meters after that checkpoint, all of a sudden this drone hit this car in front of them, which had this, this young guy in it. He was a... Uh, uh, I think he was a, a preacher, uh, which actually who was preaching against uh, Al Qaeda, and he was uh, killed in that drone strike. And before the the, the 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 missile hit the target, people saw the drone flying and they could hear it, and they were like, "Oh look, uh, maybe we should be." They were laughing, they were joking, maybe we get killed, and bam. Uh, and the reason why this is important is because uh, coming back to what we we're talking about earlier. Um, you cannot son- kill someone outside of a conflict if you don't like that person. So uh, you always have to go for through other options before there's no other resort than to use force. In this case, the US could, if they would suspect this guy to be a uh, Al Qaeda terrorist and he deemed to be a risk to the US, you know, they could easily cooperate with the Yemeni government uh, and they could even send a uh, a special forces team to arrest the guy and uh, uh, you know put him into trial uh, if he was actually a risk. But uh, you know they because uh, they went to a checkpoint from the Yemeni government. He could even be arrested by the Yemeni government themselves and then being apprehended to uh, uh, to the US for interrogation if that was that was the case. But it didn't even happen. They just decided to kill people and then civilians along the way as well. So. Uh, there were like hundreds and hundreds of these kind of drone strikes taking place in, in these areas I've been mentioning, uh, including like uh, many hundreds of civilian, well, thousands actually, I think over 4,000 of reg- yeah. drone strikes and uh, hundreds of civilian casualties. But it's so difficult 
to uh, it was always has been difficult for to monitor this because you know they're carried out in areas which we don't have a lot of access to because uh, it's very remote and people who were hit, who were killed in those drone strikes and they were innocent like they felt like okay we can where where can we complain where can we get justice for um, my my father or my mother or my sister or being killed there's a famous example from Pakistan where a 60 year old lady was working on the field and Amnesty did a good report about this uh, was working there with her grandchildren and she was blown up by a uh, by a drone strike um, and the shrapnel was still found from the from the Hellfire missile in that field so that's why we know it was a drone strike and we don't even know why they were one they just want to know why we're being targeted why why we're being killed like we done nothing wrong you know maybe you you live next to the wrong person or you're mistaking for someone and uh, I think that's that sort of set the trend to drone warfare. So of course, after all the publications in and the field investigations, uh, fortunately there was a big pushback against that, and Obama was in the end forced to to uh, well you, you know be more transparent. Uh, but under Trump, this was being because uh, the reason the. Uh, method why it became more transparent is because all these operations were carried out by the CIA which means they don't have to provide any there's hardly any oversight on what they're doing apart from some members uh, in Congress uh, and the Senate but uh, the Air Force has to be way more transparent when they use force um, um, and under Obama it's sort of the drone program was being back put in at the Air Force at some point on the JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, who carrying out all the the, um, the the special missions with the SEAL team, etc. But under Trump, it went back under the CIA, so they're still being used uh, in Somalia, and uh, now they want to be likely from Kenya as well in the Sahel. Um, and we don't know again uh, what's happening and uh, what the you know who's being targeted and why and uh, if there are any civilian casualties or not. So it's also what we learned is that the, the information coming out of the U.S. government is really unreliable. Uh, it's because of organizations like Amnesty, because of the work funded by Open Society Foundations on on the justice program to support uh, victims who want to get reparations and justice, and they've been. Like a lot of lawyers have been involved to 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 get information on the table uh, from uh, from the U.S. government on why the people who they represent are being targeted. Um, but it's been painstaking work that has cost a lot of time. And yeah, if you look at the reality of the field, like like I mentioned, it's it's easy to get cynical about it. But like, did the drone program um, did it beat Al Qaeda or did it beat the Taliban? Like, uh, it put Al Qaeda to some extent into hiding, but um, yeah, it's uh, you know sort of a whack a mole game. If you hit someone here and then somewhere else, it pops up again. So no, I, I agree, man, and I, I think it's okay to be cynical about it like i'm really tired of this idea that you not really have to have any emotional feelings within like war and conflict and that like it's one of the places where you need that otherwise this sort of stuff happens where people are just like well they got droned it doesn't matter like no it does matter these are people's lives you know what i mean um i don't know it bothers me there, there's something else that's weird as well i was reading a report that uh so people specifically in the, in the u.s this is what i was reading but it was saying that drone operators you know thousands of miles away operating the drones were actually getting worse ptsd 
or at least it seemed from this study, than some of the actual frontline soldiers who'd witnessed the fighting up close. I just found that so weird, you know what I mean? I don't know why, but it, they, I don't think they know why yet, but it was just such a strange situation, like kind of fucking everybody up, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, that's something, you know, it's easily be, they're easily replaceable as well, because I've, I've talked to some of those drone pilots um, who did who carried out those operations. Um, fortunately for them, uh, um, there's more attention to what, you know, what it means to people um, because they're so um, detached from the battlefield. Um, so, for example, what the French are doing, they're, put their, they're putting their pilots, their Reaper pilots in the containers uh, in the country they're operating the, the planes from. So the French have a base in uh, Niger, in uh, Niamey Air Base. Where they fly the Reapers from, and the pilots are based there as well, just to keep close contact with the ground. To you know, they can talk with uh, other the other uh, parts of the military who are operated who are in the field carrying out the operations, and to you know to connect people more also with the I guess also with the civilian population to 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 know what they're doing there. Um, but still, you know, it's uh, it's difficult to have an opinion. I find it difficult to, you know, at some point I understand the military logic in terms of you always want to make sure your own troops are safe and that the enemy is at the, you know, uh, at the receiving end. Uh, and this is like a means to to achieve that. So, I mean, that makes sense from a military perspective. Like it doesn't have to be fair. You know, warfare doesn't have to be fair as long as you win and as long as you don't do it uh, violating all the Geneva Conventions. That's war. War is messy and never is going to be clean. Um, so also for the drone pilots themselves, you know, you sign up to join the military. That entails that your sign up, your your willingness to to kill people. Um, so you have to take responsibility to do that. If you want to push that button and and kill someone, yeah, you have to live with the consequences. Uh, and if that means also uh staring at a screen and seeing that happening um yeah um personally i don't feel so much sympathy for for their for their uh for their trauma in that sense like you choose to do that so you know uh i'm sorry but you signed up for that and uh, if you don't like killing people maybe you shouldn't join the military <laughs> you know maybe it sounds a bit harsh but no no i know what you mean we, we all have a choice at the end of the day do you know what i mean we all have the choice um, I, I know exactly what you mean, man. Um, so, Wim, I've been following your work very closely, man. I think what you're doing is, is so good. Like, I really, really enjoy, like, looking through your reports and seeing what you're tweeting about environment and all of this stuff. Um, maybe just to kind of finish this off, just explain to the people about some of uh, your other work and what you're up to this year, I guess, next year. Yeah, sure. So this this part of the drone work is, like, the work we're doing trying to, you know, uh, see how technology is shaping warfare. Uh, the other part of the the work is we're looking at you know how the war impacts the environment and people and it's like uh, basically um, you know people when you talk about the environment people think like what you're doing like you're separating waste in a war in, in a war or something but if you actually uh, uh, travel to those areas and uh, I know you've been to uh, northeast Syria as well um, you know it's like uh, people are depending on oil um, the oil industry was heavily damaged. And now there's all kind of leakages. It's seeping into the in the rivers. Uh, people have to work in makeshift oil refineries to make a living. The uh, crop fields are being burned uh, in the summer. 
um, the waste disposal is lacking, all these kind of communicable diseases are breaking out, um, but it's hardly on the agenda of, uh, of humanitarian response. It's not on the agenda so much of, you know, when there's a reconstruction phase. Um, and we've been looking at several conflicts and we're trying to see how can we um, uh, identify those specific issues linked with environmental health, uh, like how it's affecting the health of people, how it's affecting the livelihoods. And this has been traditionally very difficult because no one was doing this. And it's, of course, hard to get information from a, from a conflict zone because it's difficult to go there if you don't have nothing, if that's not your business to be there. So we've been uh, also with, with Bellingcat, we've been using open source information to, you know, use, gather all these kind of bits and pieces of information to uh, understand what's happening. It can be very diverse uh, from the examples I just mentioned from oil pollution to, um, you know, there's been major risk of uh, factory storing uh, chemical waste in Ukraine which has, uh, if that's being hit, it would contaminate the whole region with chemical waste. Uh, water infrastructure is being damaged, so people don't have access to clean water. Uh, again, taking an example from Syria, where the, after the Turkish incursion last year in uh, northeast Syria with the uh, uh, Syrian militias, they uh, shut down the uh, water pumping station that's providing clean water to Hasaka city and, and surrounding yeah. villages. So 600,000 people were cut off from clean water. So that's like using uh, water as a weapon, which is very disturbing. Um, in the west of Syria, we're currently doing, uh, we're using satellites uh, to uh, check uh, the changes in the environment and also see how that's affecting people. So there has been massive deforestation in this area, it has hit the news a couple of days ago when there were a lot of fires in the government-controlled area in Latakia. But we've looking at the area, which initially was under rebel control in 2013, um, when like Syria has like 3% of the land is covered with forest uh, or trees. Um, it used to be actually 20 in the early 19th century. It's all cut down. But... Uh, now, during the war, like 25% of all the remaining forest is being cut down because people need firewood because energy prices are going up. Uh, there has been uh, production of charcoal for smuggling to, you know, get uh, from armed groups uh, to, you know, get money for weapons, but also by criminal groups in the government-controlled area. And there has been, like, a use of, like, uh, incendiary weapons to uh, burn down the forest where uh, rebel groups were hiding. And... So the question is like, why as a, why you care about trees so much in a war? Uh, I can understand the question, but like you know, it's if for people there living there. It's uh, you have to look, take into account the the climate change angle, uh, and you have to take into account it's also a livelihood issue, and there's also an inherent value in, in in nature and biodiversity for the country. So, and the reason why I mentioned climate change is because uh, trees are necessary to you know block sunlight or absorb sunlight to prevent. The warming of the of the soil it's it serves as a way to uh, to um, deal with uh, carbon uh, dioxide and in that sense like in the bigger picture it's important um, and um, it's also a, like a livelihood issue for in many of the areas for for people um, and so that's like one another aspect so what basically what we're doing there is trying to find look all these tools look about all the, uh, look up all these kind of different tools and uh, trying to document that and trying to engage with relevant 
organizations that they should provide cleanup and remediation of uh, uh, polluted areas so people can return uh, to the area and re rebuild their their livelihoods or their community there and yeah if you're of your fear of if you're afraid of drinking the, the water because it's contaminated because of the war then it makes it more difficult to you know uh, start up your life again um, just to give you one example um, from from Syria but there have been many different kind of issues in Iraq and Ukraine and in the South Sudan, uh, Colombia, uh, you name it. Um, you know, there have been legacy issues with Agent Orange in Vietnam, which was uh, it's a defoliant which was used by the US uh, to remove all the, uh, it was sprayed over the forests or the jungle uh, to remove all the, all the uh, leaves in the 1970s. It was, so they're using dioxide and still today, uh, dioxide is a very toxic uh, substance. It, it get easily gets into the groundwater, into um, the soil, and all these Vietnamese communities were affected by it. And 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 uh, Vietnamese children are being born with massive birth defects, which are directly linked with the use of Agent Orange, and it's still happening today. Um, so these are all kind of elements we're trying to document that, and we're using Twitter, we're using instagram facebook to collect all these stories from people posting pictures from uh, conflict areas we're using satellites to monitor where, what's happening all this satellite imagery is freely available online which is like a super interesting development so yeah if you're keen to follow that more um yeah check out uh, the twitter account it's uh, at uh, wamas uh, at uh, w a m e double z or check our website on uh, packs for peace or check bellingcat we're also publishing uh, materials on that um, and uh, yeah if you have any questions like happy to to help out or uh, explore if you're interested in collaborating with us yeah man i just want to say as well like, i really do think the work you're doing is so important because it really reflects like how people are living in the war zone it's like oh why do you care about the trees or why do you care about this well no outside of the bombs and the killing people do have to get on you know i was in when i was in um northeast syria in rojava last year went to this co-op it's like um you know equality female male co-op place um where they all do their own farming and then just over the hill there's like this huge fucking oil refinery and you know there it's this the actually it's the banner picture i took it uh, on my twitter and i said to the girls they're like wow like you got all these like organic crops but then there's like oil everywhere and they were like yeah like w there's nothing we can really do like the americans are running that we can't you know we just have to get on with our thing and i was really thinking about your work at that moment i just thought man like yeah this is actually terrible <laughs> you know what i mean like the, it's so ignored you know um so yeah man, i don't know i think what you're doing is great and definitely suggest uh people follow you sorry say that again that twitter just spell it out one more time yeah so it's uh, at uh wamas uh w a double m e double z um and uh yeah it's uh, always good to get uh, people engaged on that and yeah i think the example you gave just is really um like uh, brings the message home i guess also um and also, you know, if we talk with, with our partners uh, and people who live there uh, in, in northeast Syria, like most of them actually want to leave because they feel like oh, we can we can rebuild our future here because uh, there are a lot of shepherds there, people, you know, uh, farmers who are, are uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense to invest in farming uh, anymore because um, you know, the, 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 they have like rivers of oil are literally flowing, uh, flowing through the landscape and when there's heavy rains like the oil spreads over the acres 
the if they if they drill a, a water well, then uh, it smells bad because it's the ground is so much contaminated. So people actually want to leave leave the area and rebuild the future somewhere else because you know, there's no point in staying. I think that's sort of devastating to hear those kind of stories. But uh, yeah, 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 totally. It it defeats the object of fighting for the land as well. It's like okay, you've got your land, but there's you can't live on it afterwards. You know, it's fucked. But um, yeah, man, definitely. Thank you very much for coming on. Really interesting, man. Um, speak soon. Um, good luck with all your work, man. Yeah, thanks so much, and thanks for having me. Cheers, man. That was Wim Zwinnenberg speaking about the rise and rise of deadly drones in warfare. Scary stuff, stuff from the future. It's fucked up. You should definitely check out his twitter as he mentioned there he's got a lot of really interesting stuff going on if you like popular front you'll definitely like what he's doing please do consider supporting us on the patreon go to patreon.com popular front you will get bonus episodes access to the community discord uh early release episodes access to the too cool for j school series narrated articles there's all sorts ask anyone that's a patreon i'm pretty sure they'll tell you you get fuckloads for very little so yeah patreon.com slash popular front or if you want to support us another way go to uh, popularfront.co slash support we survive on uh, the patreon and donations we are 100 independent grassroots definitely so yeah if you want to see us keep moving forward see us keep making more stuff go and support us also, you can support us by buying our merchandise, uh, www.popularfront.shop. You will find it all there, cool t-shirts, all sorts. If you're a member of the Patreon, you will get discounts on, uh, I can't speak today, on merchandise. Um, this episode is sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them Popular Front sent you if you want to get some kind of discount, something nice. Also, the episode is sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. One in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grind Core House. Go in, say hello, they're a good bunch. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get prints at propagandopolis.com. That is P-R-O-P-A-G. Fuck my life. <laughs> One second. P-R-O-P-A-G-A-D-O-P-O-L-I-S. It's like, I don't know, propaganda if you're Greek or some shit. I don't fucking know. But yeah, propagandopolis.com and then enter the code popularfront10 to get 10% off the posters. They're very cool. Check them out. Also, the episode is sponsored by Black Triangle, an independent company selling self-defense tools. Check them out at blktriangle.com. Um, see them on Instagram and that as well. Just look them up, Black Triangle. Good bunch of people. This is not about violence. It's about self-defense. Check them out. Um... Again, uh, check us out on the Patreon, patreon.com slash popularfront. You get a lot there. Um, the more we get on the Patreon, the more content we put out, the more stuff we make, the more documentaries, um, episodes, bonus, all of that. Talking about documentaries, we've got something very, very special coming in November. So if you want to see that, make sure you subscribe to youtube.com slash popularfront. 
Check us out on Instagram at popular.front, Twitter at popularfrontco, or follow me at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Thank you to the following higher tier Patreons. They are Michael O'Connor, uh, Hapet, mate, tell me if I say your name wrong, Hapet Yagizayan. Yeah, it's Armenian, right? So Hapet Yagi Fuck. Yagizayan, I think. Let me know if that's wrong, man. Apologies. Uh, Zach Packard, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, uh, Bastian Gamillo Ritmeyer, Ian Froese, James Cully, Michael Achakan. Ethan Reyes, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Alex Northrop, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Mike Barone, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Jojo Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, Mink, Frank Austin, M- Amelia Me, Christina Rovetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Maxwell Burke, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Berg Snyder, Skatoon Music, Sebastian from Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarik, uh, Patrick Bronsey, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, where am I? Diana Gorvinek, Kubal, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, uh, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson from Iceland, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, uh, Moritz Zumwall, Kay Hardy Roberts, and Joanne Stocker. Thank you all so much. Again, if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. It all helps. Uh, the intro uh, music is by Home, and the outro is by Sam Black. Find his music at samblackpf.com.